The quantitative approach, using numbers as a proxy for quality, was an idea that tied together a bunch of different things, from the way that money and prices become a proxy for everything, to the way people think about popularity metrics, to even things like, I don't know, in the film world, Rotten Tomatoes. I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. One of the most exciting things about being an art journalist is that art as a subject is ridiculously protean. What it looks like is always changing, how we engage with it is always changing, and the role it plays in society is always changing too. What that means is that you constantly need to shift your perspective in order to see it properly searching for the correct lens on art. If you're really good and really lucky, sometimes we even get to name that lens. Pop art, for instance. Well, Ben Davis, Artnet News' national art critic, just came out with an essay that illuminates a recent shift in art that has been making big waves among the cognoscenti. It's a new tendency that he calls quantitative aesthetics. So what is quantitative aesthetics? I am very happy to be here with Ben on the show today to find out. Ben, how's it going? Good, good. Pretty good. Spring is here, and there's lots of interesting art to talk about. So we are going to delve into this essay, and we're going to talk about the art that you have been looking at and thinking about. But first, I thought it'd be interesting to get a little bit of a glimpse into how these kinds of synthetic ideas congeal in your mind. So when did you start noticing things in the art field that tipped you off, that something was afoot, and what did you do? You know, there's all this talk about... AI generated text and stuff. And this essay did not come together in a single click of the button, so to speak. It started out as one thing and it became another. It's a good example of how in the process of writing and rewriting something, you arrive at an idea. But generally speaking, the idea of quantitative aesthetics seems to tie together a bunch of different things I see in the art world and I see in the broader conversation, sort of the money ballification of aesthetics in general. Okay, so that's a really good um, lead into this question of what is quantitative aesthetics? Well, I think it's not an art movement. It's really more of a way of thinking about culture or tendency within culture. That's the way I think about it. And it can be summed up just with the general idea of the increasing use of numbers to measure quality or the quantification of quality, which I really see different versions of everywhere. It's become something that really defines the everyday experience of art, not just the business of art, but the everyday experience of art and the way people experience quality. And I just realized that that idea, the quantitative approach using numbers as a proxy for quality was an idea that tied together a bunch of different things from the way that money and prices become a proxy for everything to the way people think about popularity metrics to even things like, I don't know, in the film world, Rotten Tomatoes, which produces these scores that kind of aggregate the assessments of a bunch of different critics into one metric that is used to determine whether or not a movie is worth seeing. Quantitative aesthetics would be a term I'd use to describe 
all of that as a kind of tendency within culture. I think people can understand this pretty easily because you've been seeing in culture, I don't know, for like the past half century, a lot of focus on these kinds of quantitative signifiers of success, like a chart-topping single or a blockbuster film or a blockbuster exhibition. I mean, famously, Donald Trump, when he was running for president the first time around, he was always obsessed with talking about crowd sizes, about polling, about TV ratings. These were stand-ins for a kind of power or authority or quality of himself as a candidate. What is it that is happening new that is specific to the art world that is kind of starting to channel this impulse into the aesthetics or the science of beauty, the way that we ascribe beauty and value to objects? Well, I think that like a lot of trends or tendencies, longer lineages, and there's a bigger story and a shorter story. So yeah, I sure agree. There's sort of sensibility goes back a long ways. And it's something people have talked about and railed about and felt as an intrusion on the experience of art in different ways and at different moments for a long time. There are really innocuous examples of it, you know, like Siskel and Ebert's thumbs up, thumbs down metric is a really famous example of a pretty simple numerical indicator of quality or the idea of five-star reviews, three-star reviews, pretty simple way to navigate the mass of cultural material that you're bombarded with in a consumerist world that is detached from local communities. So these are phenomena of mass culture. You know, you're not necessarily directly a part of the embodied culture of these things. They arrive to you as commodities. And so that means that you need some simple way to navigate all that data and numbers are really handy. Way to do that. But I think that what is the more recent story is just the sheer critical mass of data around things. And I think, particularly in the internet age, the age of metrics and social media, when everybody online is moving to culture in a new kind of way, there's a new kind of intimacy to it that is felt everywhere. And something I talk about in the book I published last year, Art in the Afterculture, trying to look at the effect of internet aesthetics on life, is there is this kind of paradox in social media culture where, on the one hand, everybody can be an artist. Like It is possible for people to broadcast themselves as YouTube once advertised its core mission in a way that just would have seemed utopian a little while ago. To be a cultural producer on your own terms in a new kind of way without some kind of middleman. And in theory, that should be a big release of quality, that everybody should be able to define themselves in their own way, whatever they think is good, whatever quality of culture, whatever texture of life they want to broadcast to the world. There are less layers between you and them. The flip side of that is that because that unleashes such a mass of cultural stuff, which is difficult to navigate and takes time to learn the rules of it. The contradiction is that the very same moment that is seen that realization of the old idea that everyone can be an artist is also the time when everyone is submitted to quantification in a new kind of way, that everyone has a very intimate idea of the exact 
metrics of popularity by which they stack up against one to another in new kinds of ways. It's such a relevant thing to think about in this age where, yeah, we are working with all these platforms, these social platforms, these discovery platforms that are running on algorithms that are trying to affix different kinds of data to different kinds of skews and enable it to give you, you know, some kind of personalized experience of the site that serves you up the kind of content that you would like. And I mean, sometimes this is really successful. I think Spotify does a really good job with serving up algorithmically curated playlists and things like that. I always really like it. But in art, it seems almost as if this has been something that has not quite worked as well, where a lot of recommendation systems that I've tried serve up something that's not exactly what I'm looking for. And I wonder if this is something, art has always been a little bit resistant to this kind of data distillation because art is so complicated. So what is it now that is starting to make art become much more vulnerable to this form of curation or engagement? Well, just to start with the first part of your question, I think we should take the idea of art in the broadest possible sense to start with, because I'd argue that since the modern idea of art came into being and started to be theorized in the Enlightenment period, you know, one of the definitions of what the artistic experience is, is exactly the experience of quality, of quality outside of a non-instrumental variety. Like the artistic space is the space that's like not optimized to be used as a tool. That's what's interesting and beautiful and fun about art is it's the space where you can kind of have a never-ending conversation where there's not a right answer. And so museum art harkens in ways that aren't always apparent to us, but form the deep substructure of feeling for it to a kind of aristocratic leisure culture in a way that some of the other mass cultural objects don't. And I think that that's why it's harder to optimize for a kind of algorithmic discovery. I really do feel, though, that in the last 10 years in particular, there's been a little bit of a breakdown of those old walls around museum art or fine art or whatever you want to call it, that it's become a much more porous space with a lot of these other things. And if you want to take the flip side of the point that I think that one change in taste in general is that taste used to be defined by a certain kind of distance from evidence of commerce. And you still see that a little bit in art galleries, the way, you know, the higher up you go in the status hierarchy of galleries, the less likely you are to see prices posted. The sign of taste is that it doesn't appear immediately to you as a commodity. And similarly, art is sort of unique amongst the cultural industries that it's dominated by nonprofit institutions, museums, universities, nonprofit art spaces, and, and still is unusually weighted to those things. But the last 10, 15 years really has been a time when taste in general has become 
much more connected to conspicuous displays of wealth, where the price is part of what makes something signify as not just a luxury good, but as like a status object in pretty clearly newly evident ways. And I think art has this very paradoxical status as a thing that sort of stood aloof from that, but has also been the ultimate theater where a lot of this happened in culture. As the value of a lot of cultural industries has gone down and down and down, for example, in music, in the streaming era, like just the amount of money you can make as an artist has eroded. And the flip side of that is that the prices of artists went up and up and up and up. And so you actually see these funny things like a few years ago, the Wu-Tang Clan, the hip-hop group from... Staten Island, it's, you know, our legends, they actually sold off an album as an art object saying that like the idea of unique status goods that were sold in the kind of auction kind of way is the only model remaining for culture. So it's interesting that you bring up the economic context here, because actually I believe this essay was inspired by a viral New Yorker story by Nathan Heller that was called the end of the English major. And I think everybody has heard about that. If they haven't read it, it's a really bracing essay. How did that essay inform some of the thinking behind yours? The idea of quantitative aesthetics comes to me out of like finding or thinking about some kind of deeper structure or idea beneath a lot of these things. You know, we live in a society, a hustle culture where people are constantly thinking about maximizing themselves for popularity metrics. And that manifests in social media. The last 10 years have seen this fallout from the Great Recession, and that's been combined with a rise in inequality and so on. There's a lot of these multiple factors making money and numbers and quantification more a part of our life. And I read this Nathan Heller essay, and it really struck me as another factor to throw into the mix of what was making culture feel different in this time period. And it talked about something that might be a caused by a couple of those other things that we were talking about, the change in the economy and the transforming technological landscape. But that sort of manifest is its own kind of independent variable, which is like the changing status of the humanities in relationship to the science. And about how in the last 10 years, there's been this dramatic loss of undergraduate enrollment in humanities programs and a dramatic rise in people enrolling in things like computer science, the hard sciences in general, business. And that creates a new kind of quantitative mindset that is dominant within culture, a new kind of way of thinking about what's important that is woven into the general texture of things that I was trying to think about. It sounds like it's also kind of a bottom line fixation. Yeah, for sure. If you're talking about the destiny of undergraduate education in America, it's hard to get away from the idea that in a certain sense, a couple generations have been scarred by the Great Recession. And there's a lot of pressure on provable metrics of success, that the money you're investing in college can have rewards that can be proven. And the margin for error that we were just talking about the space of self-discovery that has always been one of the functions of culture for a kind of a conversation that isn't directly about how you're going to instrumentalize yourself for the workforce, but is about figuring out who you are. That space is narrowed for a lot of people. And that produces, in terms of people's cultural formation, what they are prepared to look for in culture and get out of it, 
it changes the balance in there. Okay, so going back to the art world specifically, when you think about quantitative aesthetics, what are some artworks that come up in your mind that seem particularly emblematic of it? Okay, well, there's one that we've talked about on the program before, which is Maurizio Catalan's banana. You know, the $120,000 banana at Art Basel Miami Beach a few years ago, that was such a viral sensation, I think is essentially pretty much directly targeted at this kind of conversation. And the price tag is part of the artwork in the sense that it is very specifically constructing its value aesthetically around its value financially and making a spectacle of that. I mean, you also think of the famous Beeple artwork that sold for, what was it? $69.3 million at Christie's. And of course, that's the best NFT artwork because it's the most expensive NFT artwork. At least that's the kind of the rhetoric around that artwork. At the same time, I mean, in the NFT world, there was so much focus on the data, on the prices, on famously line goes up, as you quote that documentary in your piece. And then you look on the flip side, like if you say the most expensive Picasso is the best Picasso, people will laugh you out of the room because the best Picassos have never been put up for sale. People would mainly think of Guernica or Demoiselle d'Avignon or a piece of that nature as being the best, but you can't really do that with a Picasso in the same sense. Is quantitative aesthetics really relating to most contemporary art that's being made into this very data-centric kind of environment? Well, I use the example of the NFT art craze the great NFT bubble of 2021 and 2022 as a cautionary tale. I think it's really obvious when you are a part of that conversation, degree to which metrics of price and popularity precede evaluation of terms of quality or come to actually eclipse it, you know, just to be the same thing in people's minds. I mean, there's a culture that forms around those numbers, in some cases around gaming those numbers. And so those numbers become the culture. But to a certain extent, that's low-hanging fruit. That is talking about the pitfalls of the NFT market here in the wake of a pretty substantial come down. You know, I think that in terms of values, the conversation about money and how it affects people's sense of aesthetic value is a long one. It goes back decades and determines our sense of value in ways that are hard to see at this point because they've been really woven into our sense of cultural value. So I'll give you a counterpoint to what you just said about Picasso, which is the late art critic Robert Hughes has a documentary called The Mona Lisa Curse from 2008. And it's a kind of a grim look at money and the art world. And he talks about prices at auction. Here's a quote talking about the giant prices paid at auction. These prices have a cultural function. The function is to strike you blind so you can't make your own judgments. And one of the examples he uses in there 
is the portrait of Adele Bloch-Bauer by Gustav Klimt, which Ronald Lauder, who bought it for $135 million in 2006, has repeatedly compared to his Mona Lisa, and I think really has become an icon. You know, I went to the Immersive Klimt show. It's really prominently featured in there, along with The Kiss and other works that I think are widely regarded as some of his great artworks. And Robert Hughes says, this is a charming painting. It's ingratiating painting, but the idea that it's equal to the Mona Lisa, even in the same league, is hokum. It's fine if you want to spend you know, $100 million in change to make it into a cultural icon. But when you think for yourself, if you look at it yourself, he says, I disagree. So I think it's really worth considering the way in which the visible stock index of prices, and now even more pervasively, I think popularity metrics reshape our perception of what is culturally valuable. And of course, you go back to the Mona Lisa and a lot of other numbers attach itself to the Mona Lisa, like crowd size, you know, number Mm -hmm. of people who take selfies with it. Same thing with like King Tut famously launched the blockbuster phenomenon in museums and is still now the big Egyptian (laughs) pharaoh, you know, because of his metrics, I think, largely. Historically, he was a, a minor figure, but he's so famous because of his metrics. So what do you think is lost against the backdrop of this fixation on data, metrics, and outside signifiers? I mean, I am a humanities guy. I think history is really important as something to value. I think that conversations about theory and ethics are really important. I think we've become culturally a much more present and future-focused culture. And I think that in a hyper-commodified culture, that is, most of the culture is stuff you buy and is being sold to you, being actively sold to you. So you're constantly inundated with these things and don't have, so to speak, your own embodied culture that you like have been steeped in. And so you have a way to navigate it more organically. Numbers become this way to make snap decisions. You know, you lose a certain amount of depth in terms of cultural experience. And I think that what I'm calling quantitative aesthetics is part of what people experience when they experience the collapse of the middle of culture. That in general, across all the cultural different fields, there are less room for things that are blockbusters and that are the tiniest, smallest emerging things with no stakes. Because what we're talking about is forces that are constantly working to optimize things for the greatest number of people. So there's less room in the middle. I also think that there's a certain kind of presentism to a conversation like this, precisely because of the factors that's about navigating masses of data in a rapid way that, you know, leaves out what for me is one of the most important historical lessons of art, which is that the things that are most popular at any given time are not the things necessarily that last or inspire people most or have the longest footprint. So you lose some of that. Well, and then finally, one of the things that was really generative for me about the Nathan Heller article is talking about how the language of statistics has become the cultural language of prestige amongst a lot of people with an elite cultural formation, with an Ivy League cultural formation. And he talks about 
in his day, the campus language was like critical theory. People would use the term reified a lot. And now people are more likely to use the language of statistics to signify that they're somebody who is in the know and hip. And that, I think that seems to me anecdotally true in my own life, that there is like just a greater presence of this conversation. I don't think that's all to the bad. I think it's important to take those kind of things. They're obviously world-changing things and our tools to help navigate and solve certain kinds of sophisticated problems. But also when you only focus on the numbers, you do lose some things. And numbers are very easily gamed. As famously said that the first lesson is statistics class, the teacher walks in and says, Lesson number one, statistics lie. And I think that's I think that's really true. And I don't know about you, but I am constantly bombarded every day with press releases for different weird cultural figures who I would say have very little to say, but lots of social media followers. I'm constantly getting press releases saying like, so-and-so has uh, you know 1.2 billion Instagram followers. So hop on this train. And that's just such a thin metric of cultural value. And obviously one that is being gamed in a variety of ways. That is another way that culture is thinning out. You're talking about the academic jargon of like the you know recent history and now this kind of new data turn. Often data is a lot like jargon in that it can be very misleading. It can be very imprecise about what it's applying to. I think about this a lot because at ArtNet, we have the price database. I work with the price database all the time. And it, we need to have a constant reminder of what the data points are actually signifying. What are they referring back to in the actual world? And it's very easy, and I think a lot of people make this mistake of looking at numbers on a page and thinking those numbers are numbers rather than remembering that those numbers are actually notational signifiers of actual things that exist out in the world. Same as like a snapshot. If you see a partial snapshot of something, it's also very important to know when it was taken, who took it, what's outside the frame. Absolutely. And I think that's a distinction that I want to make, that quantitative analysis is different than quantitative aesthetic. Quantitative analysis is a discipline and a science. Quantitative aesthetics, it's a cultural judgment. And to a certain extent, you're making a decision of what the number means, what two points it connects. And I think that is very important. And there are all kinds of decisions that go into making meaning. Like the Rotten Tomatoes tomato meter is not a quantitative analysis of anything. I mean, someone looked at a variety of written reviews that maybe had very nuanced judgments and decided whether it was mainly positive or mainly negative, you know? And it produces a single score that doesn't reflect a lot of different subtleties about cultural consumption. I just watched Tarkovsky's Stalker, a magnificent movie, but I was reading about it afterwards. And the first review that comes up by Jeff Edgers is says, a master class in boredom. Now that's not everybody's cup of tea, but I find the movie really generative and metaphorically beautiful kind of because it's alienating, because it puts you into a mindset that doesn't go down easily. A lot of what you call art is like that. It has this like texture or grit that doesn't go down easily, that isn't optimized for its moment, you know, and that's almost what it is. That's why, to a certain extent, this appears as a kind of anti-aesthetic, as a kind of like flattening of art. 
is the underlying vibe here. There's a hilarious anecdote that you include in your essay that involves Sam Bankman-Fried, the disgraced head of the crypto trading platform FTX. How does he fit into your argument? Sam's comments about art I discovered in the process of writing this, but they're really beautifully illustrative for many, many, many reasons. People will know that he was considered a cultural visionary just a year ago and is now considered an emblem of all the really the worst tendencies in our culture. But he has these very hilarious pronouncements about art and culture at a certain point in actually a very celebratory blog post. He declared, I'm very skeptical of books. I don't want to say no book is ever worth reading, but I actually do believe something pretty close to that. I think if you wrote a book, you fucked up and it should have been a six paragraph blog post. FTX is mainly a crypto trading platform. However, they did make a go at being an NFT platform. He sold NFT of basically the word test scrawled on the screen. He sold it for a quarter of a million dollars as an NFT. And when he was challenged about this by a journalist, he said, visual aesthetics are not a thing that I understand or that appeal to me very much. Paintings in general, I actually don't get. I don't personally understand the appeal of a Rembrandt painting. So when I see NFTs, part of me is like, I don't get the appeal of some of these, but part of me is like, I also don't understand the appeal of the Mona Lisa. And I think that that's a very beautiful distillation of a certain thing that's happened in culture where the Mona Lisa or Rembrandt are just reduced to things that have crowds, audiences, are famous. So therefore, the syllogism goes, other things that are famous or have that kind of cultural penetration are as valuable as them. And that produces a system of cultural value that I think his case shows the obvious pitfalls of. So that does not sound great <laughs> as a tendency for the culture. What do you think this all means on a bigger level? Where our culture is heading? Is there a backlash brewing? What do you think this means when you look out into the near future? Well, I think usually when you can name something is pretty much the moment that it's peaking, right? That usually you realize that people's experience of life precedes their theorization of it. And then as soon as you can kind of put a name on something, it's also kind of not that far from being played out, in my opinion. Although I think that quantitative aesthetics represents a set of very powerful and intimate pressures on people that are woven into the texture of culture. I mean, I wouldn't say it's necessarily a cultural movement or idea in a certain sense, because I don't think it's just a set of decisions that people have made. Like, it's not just a set of bad ideas that people have decided to use numbers to navigate cultural decisions in a kind of continuous way, because the fact that that kind of value is so present in our world is a product of how we're living, of the material circumstances of our life. You know, it's like we live in an extremely commodified, money-obsessed world, and that's as true of the super rich millionaires as it is to a certain kind of street 
hustle culture. It's a kind of a hip hop move, you know, to like brag about how many plays you've got and how many records you've sold and so on. These are the tools people have in a crowded environment in order to make a case for themselves. And I don't think we're getting rid of social media anytime soon. However, in terms of art and culture in the sense of cachet or cool, I do think there's a migration away from this kind of culture. I do think that a decade or so of viral culture has caused people to develop viral antibodies and that seeing so much stuff optimized for them is causing a kind of disaffection among the cool kids. I mean, what we always would have expected to happen, right? Is that as a kind of influencer culture optimized becomes optimized for mass consumption, that starts out as where like the cool kids are at and starts out with them being a way for them to optimize their cool and moves away from that. And I think at a sort of New York level where we're at, there's a lot of disaffection. There's a kind of opt-out culture that we're seeing. Caroline Busta, who is one of the people behind the podcast New Models, has a really great essay that people should check out called Influencing the Void from Kaleidoscope from a few years ago. And she uses these terms, the clear net and the dark forest, that the clear net is the parts of the internet where everyone can see you and is about being seen by everyone. And her argument is that culture is moving towards the dark forest. I keep using this as an example because I find it very perceptive and to a certain extent kind of optimistic. The dark forest is the spaces where you can't be seen that are kind of deliberately opaque to everybody. And I think what we're seeing is after a period of quantitative aesthetics that has really been a tool to optimize people's cultural experience for a kind of massified identity, there's like a real movement back toward niche cultures. A lot of hunger for small bore locally sourced culture. So performance art in the cold water flats are going to be the thing to do again. <laughs> yeah. Being in a hot basement with your friends. Yeah. Everyone to a certain extent knows this, that in some ways, the best cultural experience of your life won't be the stuff that's optimized for everybody. It'll be like in a crowded concert with like your friend's band on the stage and that'll be the concert you remember all your life because it felt like yours. It felt like you were in that moment um, with your people. And people have meaningful cultural experiences in all kinds of places and develop their own kind of subcultural codes, and all kinds of very massified objects. But I just think there's a very specific hunger that's the flip side of this. I mean, these are dialectical conversations. So like as it became possible for everybody to broadcast themselves, it also became a reality that everybody was much more in competition to hit the same metric. And then that produces a certain kind of alienation from metrics. And then that produces a new texture of culture. It's the continuous oscillation of the cultural conversation. And it's the moment we're in now. Well, that is an unexpectedly upbeat note to end this kind of other, otherwise depressing <laughs> conversation on. So thanks very much for coming on The Art Angle, Ben. Thanks for having me. That's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you like what you've heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. 
Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sony Manalili, Tim Schneider, and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.